From Dame's Policy, I'm Charlene. I'm Crispin. This is our week in review. So Dame's Policy is a channel aimed at intelligent people where we talk about important issues facing life and society. How was your week, Crispin? It's pretty marvellous. Yeah. Uh, Played a lot of poker, right? Oh, I did, yes. It was a a big (laughs) big poker week. Uh, Played every day. Um, So that occupied a lot of my time. Mm. Uh, Also received a message from a semi-famous poker player um mm. not just famous for that uh and she took me to task over something uh which was you know a criticism that unfortunately was fair uh which i don't like uh because <laughs> you don't like being wrong <laughs> yeah it seldom happens uh, as, as as winston churchill once said uh you know i often you know i certainly love to learn yeah but i don't always like being taught and uh, and yes, uh, she was right, and I was wrong. Um, mm. But you know, that was it. Was actually a, it, was a, it was a very trivial, well, not trivial, but like a a, a minor point. Mm. Um, but that was good. Uh, we 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 talked that out. Mm-hmm. What else happened this week? Uh, oh, our Megan Markle thing. So we we made a video uh, a while ago. Um, I'm sure I'll leave a link in the description about Meghan Markle and why everyone dislikes her and, and explaining that it's not racism, it's about the relationship that the British royals have with the British public yeah, yeah. and how uh, Meghan and Harry both broke that covenant and the, and the backlash that accrues from that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that you went too. from... <laughs> Has rewarded us with this Meghan Markle video. Yeah, because, you know, she's, she's doing that sort of tour now with, with Oprah and whatnot. People mm. are fighting a video against, and that's become our most popular video over the last, you know, couple of weeks. And uh, Charlene was like, oh, look, we should do more on that. People want to hear about Meghan Markle. I'm like, look, this is dangerous policy, not Woman's Day. Like, this is, <laughs> we were talking about serious issues here. Uh, so this is this is us keeping faith with our, our audience and our commitment to yeah. not just follow the algorithm but actually talk about the issues that uh, we think are important. Uh, Megan Markle's is not up there at the moment. Uh, uh, the not moment. the moment, but I think it's just hilarious. <laughs> Maybe when she runs for president, like she said she was going to, um, it'll become a, mm-hmm. a, a more worthy topic to discuss. But yeah. at the moment... She um, is a very unique celebrity, though, in terms of, like, she always seems to be talked about in the media, like... Well, of course, it's 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 soap opera using real people, right? Like, Mm. uh, it's reality television without reality television. Um, People obsess over other people's personal lives. Why do people do that? It's just because they're bored in their own, or they kind of just want to live in that dream. Because I guess I have to, I have to say that's correct. I have to say that people are insufficiently entertained in their own lives. I mean, if you look at the demographics of people who buy romance novels, for example, Mm. they're all 30 to 50-year-old housewives, right, that just consume this material at a rate of knots, all the Mills and Boone novels, all the vampire fiction, Uh, people who... So all the young adults. Yeah, they just collect all these magazines covering celebrities and their lifestyles and things like that following the kardashians all of, all of that it's it's the same demographic that that consumes all of this material mm. um and i just want to like perceived value of consuming this material entertainment i guess right um well it's uh, i think there's something evolutionarily like attractive gossip. about yeah gossip about drama mm. uh i mean as 
one someone once said who's famous for a bunch of uh of soap operas they said look the only difference between television and real life is that television is uh life with the boring bits cut out okay so mm-hmm. you, you know people or as bill gates put it right he said look in the real world people have to leave the diner and go back to their jobs, right? Yeah. Um, and he was making an inference on all of those soap operas and sitcoms that make jokes about relationships and things like that, where you've got all the friends, they all get together in that one place and they all have their jokes and whatever, and then they go on. So How I Met Your Mother is a really great example of that, both the sitcom but also elements of a soap opera because there'd be con- continuing storylines. It's a really good blend, a really clever blend of those two elements mm. where each episode would have a theme and the theme would end and it would be like a sitcom and nothing dramatic would change episode to episode, but there would be mm. overarching story and then one overarching meta plot is How I Met Your Mother, right? Yeah. And they would all meet in that one uh, dining area. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, it was, yeah, it was um, really interesting in that respect. Like, it, but that, that's what people are excited about. Now, I think How I Met Your Mother had a much broader audience because it was also really funny, right? And so mm-hmm. people could watch it who weren't following the personal relationship dramas with like who Ted was dating or whatever. It was, it was all, um, you know, about the jokes. But mm-hmm. then some people could watch it from the overarching story of like how these relationships were unfolding, attaching themselves to different characters and seeing it played out in that way. And by yeah. the way, Barney was the only character worth watching, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's so funny. All right. All right. Let's just stop there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, no argument from me. I mean, but, but yeah, it's, I, I, I think, unfortunately, uh, it'll be a characteristic of our society. It'll play out in different formats in different ways mm. for, for forever. Um, people will always be interested in gossip. People will always be interested in drama. Mm. People will also always be trying to spice up their own lives by attaching themselves to various escapisms and fantasy. Mm. I mean, it's just some people's guilty pleasure. Like the other, oh, no, we never published it. But, yeah, I, 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 worry. I watched Married at First Sight for the first time, which is showing to me. I don't, yeah, they're looking at this. It's approving me. Um, yeah, and, yeah, it is essentially a bunch of 30-year-olds, like, wanting to find a man um, and that is can't find a man. So they go on a reality TV show, get paired up with a guy they've never seen in their life and they are married. Um, so social experiment. And I admittedly was pretty like engaged <laughs> for that hour and a half. Hey, my mom was like, well, married the first time is on. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know what? I actually wouldn't mind watching a show like that that took it seriously. Like if, if it was, um, Let's like because the the Married at First Sight show, of course, is you get the trashiest of trashy stuff that you can possibly get and slap it all together and yeah, see it's if like you can make a show. Bogans or bleached hair. Yeah, right, yeah. those are two criteria to get on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that so they're obviously looking for a particular type that will appeal to a particular audience, right? Yeah. But uh, at the same time, if it was serious, if it was like, okay, I have a theory that we can get two people who have never met each other mm. to get married and have it work, right, and actually follow the same couple over, like, a year. Like, make sure that the, the show doesn't air for, like, two years after marriage or something. Yeah. And you do that with a bunch of different couples and you use, like, science and a lot of careful analysis and, and use big data. So, okay, what makes a marriage work? How do we know what are the kinds of things that set people up to success and put those things in place, right? So you go, okay, well, um, 
you know, if they get counseling within the first year, then this happens and blah, blah, blah. So that we, we put those pieces of the puzzle mm. and really do some serious matchmaking and see if science can trump, like, you know, the spark, if you like. And uh, I think that that would be a really interesting experiment to run and to, and to, and, and we can get some serious volunteers for that. You wouldn't have to go find, you know, yeah. people who are just going to create drama on TV. You could actually find serious people who are like, you know what, I'll try that. Um, and uh, and we could turn that into a proper show. Maybe maybe if you like it, you know, maybe we can crowdfund for it. <laughs> yeah, they do have matchmakers, but I'm, I don't know how reliable they are. Looking at the data, they they do weird things. But it could just be like, look at the stars, and it's it's stupidest. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, every decision, and and I'll do a video on on this at some point. But but everything that happens in your life, everything that happens in your life, is based on Jupiter. No, <laughs> so I can't. Everything that happens in your life is based on probabilities. Right. Okay. So when you get up and you walk outside, there is a certain probability of rain, right? That's the most obvious one because meteorology uses that metric quite well when they say, oh, 86% chance mm -hmm. of rain tomorrow, 20% chance of rain, whatever. What that means is looking at past history uh, of similar weather conditions, the probability of rain occurring in that period of time is X, okay? Yeah. So, but you can do that for everything. The, the, the probability that the bus arrives on time. Well, a certain percentage of the time it doesn't, and that will be at different, at different points of the day on different routes. It'll have a different degree of probability. Mm -hmm. The probability of you getting certain health conditions, the probability of you having like a, a car accident the next month or whatever, all of this stuff has mm -hmm. probabilistic numbers attached to it. I mean, the probability of you being born, like... Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, it, well, it's it goes from zero to one hundred, right? Because it's like you couldn't possibly predict that your parents would meet. Like, because you go for as far enough back, the probability becomes zero, right? Like, yeah. you, you think 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 five hundred years in the future. Like the probability that my descendant will be born exactly five hundred years in the future. Uh, let's say ten generations hence. And uh, their name will be um, Samuel, and uh, they'll be born in um, Kazakhstan. Uh, well, the probability of that is zero, right? Or close enough to that it's such an absurd proposition mm. because so many things have to happen in a row that you could never replicate that. Uh, whereas once, but you know, the, there is a, a probability that there will be someone ten generations hence if I have kids and everything, and 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 that there will be someone born and once yeah. that person is born in that time and place well that probability is is 100 because it's already happened so it's it's one of those things that's impossible to predict but also uh, inevitable um mm. whereas uh probabilistically uh that you'll find someone who you marry and is happy with forever uh will we can assign probabilities to that and we can actually assign probabilities to the different types of people so Let's say, for example, 50% uh, of marriages end in divorce, as it is in, in mm. a number of Western countries, right? And just use a round number, 50%. Mm. That means that 50% of marriages fail completely. 50% mm. of marriages fail, whereas a number of those that don't fail would have failed, except one of the two of them passed away, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's an additional percentage. Then there's a percentage of people that have stayed together because they only for 
financial reasons like they, they don't want the cost of divorce yeah. or they have kids like well but I mean, that's another factor but like oh. like just a just a factor of like they're not together in any way they're just physically separate and they live different lives they just don't want to go through the financial rigmarole of getting a divorce like it costs a lot of money to separate all these assets and everything mm. so they just don't bother right and they go okay we have an agreement between us and let's just live our different lives uh, and then there are people where one person is happy in the marriage the other person isn't um and that other person isn't doesn't want to leave for whatever other reason Mm -hmm. um and then yeah perhaps loveless marriages that exist because of children and they reserve the marriage because of that fact um there might be relationships that are just codependent and they're like look you know we rely on one another for these things but you know it's a loveless marriage but we you know it's very utilitarian. They like see each other like I don't know on certain dates of the year, and then they live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then so of a minority of a minority of a minority of a minority are going to be genuinely happy, loving marriages throughout their lives, right? So if we just take that cohort, mm-hmm. okay, and we look at the what are the specific characteristics across the entire spectrum of different things to look at? Yeah, uh, that that predict that so some of it will be wealth class education some of it will be physical appearance mm-hmm. some of it will be um obviously a lot of it will be values and attitudes to money and cohabitation and and uh whether or not they had children and all this sort of stuff so that yeah. a lot, you just just be able to drill that down to a very fine degree but but even though it's a minority by minority you'd be able to look at that over a large enough sample size and then be able to make predictive elements and say look these are the factors of, uh, you know, a successful marriage that we've seen as commonality across characteristic mm-hmm. of those that are happy and successful and loving and want to be together forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we should do is we go out and find people with these characteristics and put them together and see what happens, right? Um, and, and that would be a, an interesting television show um, to have a married at first sight thing where you've got a lot of, you know, people, people who are um, running the show, not you know, being matchmaker romance experts, but just being data analysts and mathematicians um, because they're probably the ones that are, like in every other domain of human endeavour at the moment, they're probably the ones that are going to have the most success. Mm. Well, deep. <laughs> that's deeper than I expected, but, man, that's why reality TV shows are fun and that's why Christmas all right for it. Makes sense. Who says? I mean, like, yeah, you could put that onto everything, but I think we shouldn't look into it too deeply. They just well, want we should though. Answer. That's the thing. Like, we absolutely should because yeah. that's it would create genuine value. Isn't, oh, it, isn't it the most important decision you'll ever make? Like, isn't it that? Isn't that the single most important? Like, who to spend your life with? Isn't that? Is, yeah, is there but... any decision that's more consequential? Uh, and. Why, why not use evidence? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, I think dating apps instead of like either trying to recreate like Black Mirror, which was, oh. the, had that exact thing, losing data to find your 99% match. Yeah, but it's gone in a really bad way. Like it, that was the promise of it. Uh, but what actually happened in actual fact was that uh, people reduced, instead of exploring the characteristics of what caused success, mm. people reduced relationships to what they imagined that they would want mm. on paper right which is a really one-dimensional way so what what gives romance its spark what gives courtship its its uh, mystique if you like yeah. is the surprise element right so 
it's one thing to get people to look at huge data sets and go, okay, here are the characteristics of a successful marriage. Yeah. Um, let's see if we can replicate this artificially, right? Which is which is a clever thing to do. Whereas um, in your own individual life, uh, the thing that gives it your relationship its own soul, if you like, mm. is the surprise element. You, you you look at a piece of paper and you go, okay, this person ticks this box, this box, this box, and this box. Mm. Um, but uh, when you know, you, and you're flicking left and right on your on your phone apps, mm. but uh, it's it's really not predictive in any way of how you'll genuinely feel about someone, right? And what it invariably does is it sharpens an already sharp distribution curve. So, for example, um, if you are someone who ticks all of the boxes, uh-huh. because all everyone has the same boxes, right? People, every, Like every woman wants a guy who's tall, wealthy, educated, uh, blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. So a guy who has those characteristics in his bio, well, mm-hmm. he's going to get a lot of attention, right? And so he'll have his pick of the audience, okay? Mm. But each individual woman imagines that's what they want in a guy. Yeah. But when they meet the guy, it's, it's a much more complicated decision, right? Yeah. So um, what we see is an inefficient distribution of, of, of partnerships. What, what was expected was that people would be able to go for people much more efficiently because they wouldn't be dating all these deadbeats that they didn't have any interest in who, and would have much greater chance yeah. of meeting someone that was more compatible for them because they would be using dating apps to reach people of mutual interests and characteristics was an actual fact is um, people self-selecting people well yes and people having like in actual fact on these apps for example three percent of the guys get like 50 percent of the attention right it's Mm -hmm. it's a and and i'm sure the reverse is true as well um because what's on paper what's on your profile is just the same thing that everybody wants right so they'll just they think they want it anyway so they'll they'll Give it, but when they actually, you know, meet them or or they they miss out on the people that they would have actually been more compatible with, um, because they don't necessarily know consciously what it is that's best for them. Um, whereas if you were to use big data of what already works out there yeah. and use that to determine what um, is is how to meet up would be would be much better. So I think that the person who creates the online dating service, which says okay, you're going to be given someone that you have to go on a date with, right? right. By signing up to the service, you'll be allocated a date, okay? <laughs> Based on, I don't know. Based on what we've decided, okay? Right, right. Uh, and it'll be like a blind date or whatever. We'll give you some questions to ask each other. Mm. And uh, I think using proper science, like not just do it as a cash grab, do, using actual proper science to, to make this work mm. would be a much more successful way of doing it, much better for all the parties involved because they would, they would meet someone who the, the algorithms, the uh, computer data scientists would say, look, this is actually going to probably has a good probability of working based on all the um, successes we've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see if you if you if this actually plays out. Now, nothing's guaranteed. That's why it's a probability. Yeah. Um, but uh, a high probability. Yeah, yeah. Much much more effective than self-selecting, right? Yeah. Because you don't choose who you meet, right? Mm. When you're out there in your day-to-day life, you, you run into someone, mm. and the sparks fly, and your chemistry and all of that sort of stuff. It's not like you go, okay, I'm going to meet this person who's here. You don't know that ahead of time. 
right? Mm. You, you only run into them by chance. Yeah. And then you fall in love and get married. Well, if you did that in the same sort of mechanical, artificial way with experts in the background doing all the numbers, yeah, yeah. Uh, then you've probably got a much better hope of finding a, a successful partner. There you go. Business venture. Um, wow, we're just going all these ideas. Better patent it. <laughs> well, yeah. But, but, and, and people, like, I actually think people want to lose some control. Like yeah, when, I think so as well. When you're when you're like overwhelmed, all these like options out there, then you're like you're always looking at the grass as greener, and at the same time, then you don't actually make a choice <laughs> um, because of that. So yeah, so mm. maybe maybe I mean we've talked about it here for the first time in, in the weekend review, but I'll let's say next week I'll do a video on on the way dating should work in the internet age. Oh, okay. Because uh, I think that would be a, a an interesting. Um, an interesting discussion because yeah, people don't want like people lose the romance if they have total control. Like part part of a relationship is not having control. Like that's one of the things that you have to give up when you're in a relationship is control, um, which is you know one of the reasons I'm blissfully single. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm nothing to reply to that. So yeah, <laughs> Charlie's thinking of many other reasons why Christopher Munn. Yeah, I mean I think that's a benefit for me when I met my partner because we had chatted literally for five minutes mm. and then I didn't want to do it a uni assignment. So I was like, let's go for coffee. And it's like, sure. So we are like, it was just such an in the moment thing. Had no expectation. It was like, it almost felt like I bumped into them. Right. Like it, there wasn't any. Yeah, absolutely. There wasn't any like, you know, build up of cheesy pickup lines. Yeah. Like that. preempt all this stuff and going through like, yeah, like the checklist that had. And what you said also, um, guys, I mean, you know, this isn't a pickup channel or anything, but <laughs> but one of the best ways, best places, I should say, to meet uh, potential partners is the library, okay? Because as Charlene said, she wanted to get out of an assignment. When people are at the university libraries or they're at the public libraries, they're not there, but generally speaking, because they just love being at the library. They're generally there because they're studying for something. They've got like some assignment that's hanging over them and goodness me do they want a distraction so if you <laughs> it's a really uh it's a really good place to get someone's attention uh yeah. if uh if you're and the, great, the greatest thing is right people at the library are obviously self-motivated probably intelligent because they care about their study and whatnot so yeah like the pool is actually yeah, so despite these drawbacks it's a really great place to meet <laughs> 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 well, yeah, my friend, my friend is going to do that. <laughs> um, one thing we didn't address is that we didn't do a weekend review last week because... Well, we, that's not true. We did. Yes, we did. We did a weekend review, but the technology failed. Uh, so... Yeah. Because, it, well, actually, it didn't even fail. We, 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 we do have a recording the weekend review. It was actually a pretty good weekend review. It was, but, like... Our OCD with like it wasn't in focus, and I know Elias will be like, "It's not in focus." It was definitely not in focus. <laughs> yeah, way out of focus. So, um, you know, the quality quality assurance uh, kicked in, and we're like, "No, we can't, we can't put this up." So, um, does mean that we can talk about some of those videos now? Mm -hmm, exactly. And Poland, hello, or like Eastern Europe, hello. Like um, they have what introduced a, a law, or they're trying to introduce a law with big tech. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the most obvious law. So Poland is introducing legislation mm. that says you can't deplatform someone, you can't censor them or shadow ban them 
uh, unless they say something that contravenes Polish law, i.e. Uh, social media is where the speech plays out. Mm-hmm. It, it, they claim the protections of like a telephone company, i.e. the mm-hmm. telephone company doesn't control what you say on, over the phone, uh, and thus they must behave like a public square. Yeah. And in that space, it's not private companies that determine what's said or not said, uh, but individuals in accordance with the law of their nation state. And Poland says, well, we're the Polish government are like, well, we're the ones that determine this, not private big tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thus, if you wish to operate and service Polish citizens, then you have to uphold their freedom of speech rights. And that's a an extraordinarily important development that I think is just so self-evidently needed around the world. And I'm hopeful mm. that the success of that legislation will be a model and a roadmap for the rest of the world and Poland really leading the way. It's very um, sensible because I guess big tech, I don't know, I, I'm thinking, right, big tech, I think, I think back to that video you did, um, Twitter CEO saying, you know, it's a very complicated issue when they banned Trump and he had this whole spiel about it. Like it's almost like big tech are also lost on their responsibility, how far they can actually go. Well, um, I'll read you something evil that's happening with Google right now, right? Mm-hmm. Along this line, uh, just it's shocked me. This is just in the last day or so. Oh, okay. Um, here we go. Um, okay, so this is Google making an announcement. I'll read it out to you. Uh, as as question answers, whether or how a given algorithmic behavior should be addressed, and, and Google says, if a representation is factually accurate. Can it still be algorithmically unfair? Their answer, yes. For example, imagine that a Google image inquiry for CEOs shows predominantly men. Even if it were factually accurate representation of the world, it would be algorithmic unfairness because it would reinforce a stereotype about the role of women in leadership positions. However, factual accuracy may affect product policy's position on whether or how it should be addressed. In some cases, it may be appropriate to take no action if the system accurately reflects current reality. While in other cases, this is the crutch, while in other cases, it may be desirable to consider how we might help society reach a more fair and equitable state either via product intervention or broader corporate social responsibility efforts. So what Google is saying is, they're not just an a impartial search engine reflecting people's search inquiries. Mm. They're going to manipulate the algorithm, and they already are, frankly, yeah. showing people results based on their utopian worldview, irrespective of what actual reality is. So they've just given one example here, which is like if you type CEOs into Google, you won't get the most algorithmically appropriate images you'll get whatever they've manipulated to make sure you see a lot of women okay Mm. but you could apply that to many other things as well Uh, certainly they they famously had manipulated their image search so that if you type uh, white heterosexual couples into google and you do an image search you'll only see gay men right they've done that already Uh, and that was because they assumed that only white nationalists would be interested in searching for that term and therefore they thought they would troll them by by manipulating the search results. Um, but but the, the dark, perverse aspect of this is that when you do a search into Google, you can no longer trust the yeah. results as being factually accurate or representative of what the 
algorithm is, is telling you, it could be someone behind the screen saying, okay, well, this is the information we want to show you. Um, and that is beyond evil. That is, that is like totalitarian dystopia. I mean, wasn't that the whole thing that the whole American people were criticizing when Trump was elected, thinking it was like a Russian conspiracy and then all the algorithms are fake news? Like, isn't that the very thing people are against? <laughs> And, yes. And yet they're using the very thing to promote their own ideologies and what? Yes. So it, it's essential. It's essential that governments take control of this. And Poland is doing one step when it comes to social media uh, in terms of broadcasting and, and individuals communicating and sharing ideas for social media. So that's a critical thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Google is obviously the next step. They should introduce laws to say you will not interfere with the algorithm in our country unless doing so is at the behest of our, our government law, right? Yeah. Uh, like if, if um, uh, you know, it's not, if you wish to operate as a search engine platform, then you have to abide by our laws. And now you might be able to compromise on some of it and say, look, okay, you must in any, in any instance where someone searches for a term and it's not showing exactly what the algorithm says, there must be a big giant warning label at the top and big red, borders and say, look, you know, we've adjusted the search results, but also provide the option to click here to see the actual results, right? So if Google thinks that they're so good that people need to be protected from their own search results, mm. uh, then it should be up to the individual user to overrule Google's uh, helpful parental intervention, if you like, uh, and see the results for, them, for themselves. Uh, uh, because yeah, it's, it's an out. This, this is truly dystopian stuff. It's, I can't actually criticize it enough and how grateful I am mm. to the Polish government for doing something about it. Hopefully we will see this replicated elsewhere. Certainly the appropriate way to regulate big tech, what Australia had done with trying to force Facebook and Google to pay advertise, um, pay media companies for advertising mm. uh, was just, you know, silly yeah yeah i don't like they didn't eventuate anything right so we got our news back on facebook but but they also like apparently like um heavy negotiations with the code well it, it, i mean the only people who lose out are consumers and smaller media companies right because what google has done is they've made separate deals with certain media outlets mm. to comply with the code and not others so when you search for news in australian google search only certain news distributors come up. So they've been privileged in the marketplace. Yeah. So they've done exactly the opposite of what was intended, right? Because now they're getting privileged position in an anti-competitive space. No one else can enter into the market. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and consumers obviously don't see the broad breadth of news to be able to get their information from a variety of sources. So, I mean, yeah, the, the ACCC really blew this one up. Um, but anyway, that's a... Yeah, that's a whole other story, but that's interesting. What what does it take for like a country to like replicate? So I know like for that I mean that Google, right? Mm -hmm. Um with this law with Poland. So if it was like quote unquote successful and you know, the people stepped away, Facebook stepped away, where other how how does other countries like look at that to policymakers like, uh huh. Like I don't know. Is there a So I think it First of all, it, it needs to be shown to work. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think proponents of it will need to be championing it in other forums. So the Poland will need to take it to the EU. Poland will need to take it to other kind of, you know, G20 meetings and things like that um, to encourage other governments to take this on board. 
Uh, you might even find a few champions within big tech as well, because some people in big tech realize that this is an inappropriate role for them. And they've been encouraging governments for a long time to kind of say, look, um, you know, we're trying to comply with it. You're telling us all this kind of conflicting stuff, right? So mm. on the one hand, you're saying, look, free speech. But on the other hand, you're saying, why don't you protect like deplatform all the Nazis and mm. why are you allowing people to do illegal things on Facebook Live and all this sort of stuff. Mm. Um, so a lot of them, it's a headache and they would just be perfectly happy to have governments tell them what the rules are. But I think for a majority of big tech, unfortunately, they're just drunk on the power and wouldn't want to give it up unless they're forced to. So thankfully, um, thankfully the Polish government is going that direction. Hopefully just the sheer example of its success will will inspire others. But the problem is I don't think it's being formally, because the, the Polish government legislative process it takes a while, so okay. I don't think it will be in effect until like the end of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Okay, well, it's more like watch this space, see what happens. Mm -hmm. And another country, Lithuania, my favourite, like, it's becoming my favourite country, but I've never been there yet, um, is standing up to China. Like, what is this? Like, where all these European countries... Um, and yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. When you sh shared me the news, I was like, wow, like they're game. <laughs> yeah. So for those that, that missed the segment, uh, Lithuania is opening up a trade mission to Taiwan, Yes, yes. which is for China, an absolute Chinese communist party, an absolute red line. Mm. So I expect China to seek to retaliate against Lithuania pretty fiercely. Uh, but an extraordinary step for Lithuania to take. And one thing about Lithuania in particular, and I think the other Baltic states more generally, because Estonia is also going in this direction too, mm -hmm. uh, and probably Latvia, uh, is that because they've had the direct experience of Soviet occupation, they understand what, you know, controlling people's speech, uh, controlling people's thought processes, using identity as a means by which to segregate people in, in the case of communism of class, but obviously mm -hmm. in wokeism, it's race, uh, then where that all leads and, uh, and the true nature of a totalitarian dictatorship unaccountable yeah. to the people and liberal democracy. Like it's, there's a famous saying that says war is delightful for those that haven't experienced it. I think the, uh, a similar thing could be said for democracy and say, you know, democracy is a disaster except for people that have lived under anything else. Mm. Uh, and uh, the Lithuanians, the Poles, the Baltic states, they've had an experience, a national experience that Western Europe hasn't had. And so Western Europeans take it for granted, Yeah, uh, which they don't. And they understand that, that being a government, being a country is more than being an economy. Mm. Right. To be a government, you're trying to look after a society. And the Lithuanian people are saying Western liberal democracy is something we've adopted for a reason. And the rise of China threatens that worldview. Right. Mm. It's not just that China is is, you know, a dangerous country in itself, but its rise fundamentally threatens to reshape the global order. Mm -hmm undermine the hegemony of Western liberal democracy and Lithuania with its tiny economy of 3 million people uh, are willing to stand up and say, no, we're not going to take that um, and we're not going to 
be bribed uh, through trade promises and things like that into accepting that China will be the center of the world. Uh, and that's just an extraordinarily brave, it's a brave thing for any country to take, but for, for, for Lithuania, I think it's extremely bold. Yeah. And it follows a tradition where they've done that repeatedly. Like I said in the video, you know, they're the ones protecting the government in exile in, um, from Belarus, uh, escaping Lukashenko. Uh, they're the people that are most vocal in the European parliaments and forums uh, criticizing what's happened with Alexei Navalny, the opposition figure in Russia who was poisoned with Novichok. Uh, and so, you know, Lithuania is the leading light for this and uh, and they deserve a, a degree of, of respect, um, yeah. but also concern. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, like, so what could happen? But obviously, China will retaliate. Yes. Because, I mean, China retaliated to us with the barley and the wine. and. <laughs> yes, and I, and I would caution the Lithuanian government into thinking that they'd, the, what the Lithuanians would be saying to themselves is that, oh, we're not that reliant on China and therefore we don't have to worry about China. Mm. And unfortunately, that's just a bit naive. Um, China has enormous influence around the world. So just because Lithuania may not have strong bilateral trade with China at the moment, uh, China will lean on Russia to say, look, you know, stop buying Lithuanian cheese. Uh, China will lean on Germany and France and say, look, we'll stop buying your cars unless you do something about these pesky Lithuanians. So Lithuania may not have a lot of direct trade with China, but there are a lot of countries that do have heavy dependence on China and a lot of aspirations for China in the future uh, have a lot of leverage over Lithuania. Yeah. So what's really important now is for uh, the other countries that stand to be uh, kind of uh, influenced by China to, to uh harm Lithuania mm -hmm. to resist that pressure. So Germany, France, uh, they need to step up and they have to back the Lithuanians. And when China comes knocking and say, look, you've got to do something about these Lithuanians or else, mm -hmm. they have to say, you know, buzz off, right? Uh, and uh, so I'll be watching very closely the way the uh, other EU countries react to what Lithuania has done, see who is supportive and who's sort of quiet mm. uh, and see, you know, whether or not these countries are, you know, willing to publicly back and support what Lithuania has done mm. or whether they are willing to kowtow before the Chinese Communist Party and threaten Lithuanian exports and trade uh, as a means to, to do what the Communist Party wants. Because as soon as you start doing that, as soon as Germany goes, oh, I'm worried about our car manufacturers and for the sake of these bloody Lithuanians, mm. uh, as soon as the, the German government, for example, does that, well, then they're basically handing, ceding their own sovereignty to to China. It shouldn't be up to Beijing to determine German's economic and foreign policy, right? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it's very important that the other EU countries show some solidarity here mm -hmm. and don't just take the... the the tasty, tasty Chinese money. Well, I hope that, like, through this pandemic and COVID, it's like, you know, more more countries are questioning whether they should be reliant so much on China, right? Would they, do you think, because of... Got the air on that, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's too hot in Australia. <laughs> yes, so apologies for, for that noise. Um, <laughs> that will definitely be picked up on, on these mics, but that's okay. Uh, that's fine. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like, um, because of all that, like, 
perhaps, yeah, we might see some resilience <laughs> to Chinese money and, yeah. Like, I hope so. I hope so. But, see, Australia made the same mistake, right? Like, Australia, I mean, to be fair, there was a lot of people in the mainstream at that time imagining that as China got rich, it would democratise, and we've been through that many times. So I won't, I won't go yeah. into the story here. And that was always kind of a self-serving belief, but that was a widespread belief. And so Australia was quite willing to overlook all kinds of stuff in order to get rich off the back of China. Mm. Now that Australia is displeasing the Chinese Communist Party, we're seeing the true extent of our dependence and the cost to Australia for standing up to China. Europe isn't there yet. Europe isn't as dependent on China as Australia. Europe, of course, massive trade between the EU and China, um, you know, biggest trading partners, but uh, but the Europeans aren't overwhelmingly economically tied to China the way Australia is and much of Asia is. And so there is a window there for it to be a choice because they also have to learn the lessons of Australia. Uh, the Europeans must know that no matter how much trade they do with China, China's not going to democratise, right? It's just going to make China more powerful and China will eventually be able to fully challenge the United States in every possible domain, including the military domain, and uh, and vie for hegemony in the world affairs, right? So the Europeans have to make a decision as to whether or not they want to tie themselves to that future, uh, knowing that, that what this is is not you know, them helping the Chinese people kind of lift out of poverty and then democratise. Mm. What they're doing is helping China take over the world. And uh, if they want to do that willingly for the sake of a few dollars, they they can do that, but they have to do it with their eyes open, yeah. knowing that that's what they're doing. They are not. They shouldn't be confused about that, right? It has to be very clear that they are willing to embrace a Chinese-led world order in which a totalitarian regime is the most powerful country in the world. Uh if not, they have to do something to stop that from happening, in which case the Lithuanians clearly have planted a flag there, which is great. Mm -hmm. uh, and now is a moment of inflection for these European powers. Yeah, I'm sure, like, surely, like, these foreign, like, um, spectators, like, all, all these foreign intelligence agencies consider these things, right? Or do they think that... They do, but they're just one interest group. So, oh, so as I said, the okay. Estonian um, Foreign Intelligence Service really did come up with an amazing report about CCP influence in Estonia. Mm -hmm. uh, but they they weigh that up against the enormity of the Chinese cash, right? Like if you've got all these constituents that are looking for jobs and investment and trade opportunities and new markets and uh, and China is growing rapidly and, and there's enormous pressure on you as a government to get a piece of that pie and, you know, rain money on your constituents to get re-elected. Well, there's a lot of advantages there to do that. I mean, it's and having a good relationship with China, you know, has advantages. Like if it did, no one would, would do it, do, right? Yeah. Uh, but the question for Western countries is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Um, and the degree to which your sovereignty is abrogated and your dependency increases. And that, that, that lack of sovereignty increases over time as you become more and more dependent on China. Is it worth it for that? And former Soviet-occupied countries are better at judging that, I think, than those that have never experienced a life in which 
totalitarian regimes have such control, right? Because it, like you go, well, is it really going to be that bad if you know, like, we can get rich now? Like, if, let's say you're in you're in France, right? Mm. And and you're faced with the choice of like, okay, well, China is willing to rain money on us. We can go outside and just bathe in the digital money, okay? And uh, all we have to do is not criticize China or talk about their human rights abuses. Uh, and they will just continue to give us money. And you go, well, that's not really, you know, g- given the advantage to the French people, uh, the promise of our future economic development, um, the future trade relationships with, with the world's most populous country, mm. is it that big a deal, right? And so they go, current benefit for my immediate political future, mm-hmm. right? versus you're talking about something that could happen in the future. We don't really know. We don't know what a super wealthy country China will look like. Uh, we, you know, you, you're kind of, you, you're, you're a bit of a downer, okay? Um, it's easy for the French or the Germans or the Spanish or the Italians or whoever, or the British, to choose the easier option mm. uh, and go, well, I'll just take this, this free money that's sitting here. Mm. Um, Whereas if you, you need to get the perspective of history to really appreciate the interest payments you're paying on this. And, uh, and I think the Lithuanians have got that sort of far-sighted view because they can look into the past and say, okay, well, what would, be, what would we be willing to give up or forego yeah. to avoid the past from repeating itself? What would we forego... So that Western liberal democracy is the the predominant cultural norm throughout the world in perpetuity. Mm. And the Lithuanians are willing to value that appropriately. If you, if you properly value your individual sovereignty, your freedom of movement, your freedom of expression, uh, your uh, ability to criticize, if you value that appropriately, mm-hmm. then no amount of money from China is going to dissuade you from that position. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, Western countries haven't experienced that properly, whereas Eastern European countries tragically have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite noble of them to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. There's another topic I kind of want to talk, and it's kind of controversial. Vaccinations. <laughs> oh yeah, the vaccine. Yeah. So it's doing rollout. Um, finally, as soon as getting the jab, jab, and hopefully, I mean, well, us, I guess we're um, we're like not of a high risk group, so I guess we are later. But it is interesting. It is interesting. I feel like people are divided whether this uh, vaccine should be mandatory, and you listed out some reasons why it should not be mandatory. Yeah, but I just feel like. Because, yeah, there's a whole cultural movement against anti-vaxxers, like in terms of like how um, they're perceived in the media, that they're just lunatics, um, that, you know, uh, yeah, we won't make it mandatory, but we'll coerce them into doing it anyway. Um, yeah. It is interesting. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. Anti-vaxxers might be lunatics, right? Like I'm all for, for rationality and, and evidence-based decision-making, right? Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the criticisms, a lot of the fears and anxieties of the anti-vaxxers is irrational, um, but that doesn't forego their their fundamental rights, you know? Uh, And people making this argument, oh, what about everybody else? Well, it's kind of a mute point. If if 99% of people take a vaccine, Mm. 
just through personal choice, then it doesn't really matter, does it? Right? Yeah. Um, it. I don't like being told I have to do something. Like, mm. for example, if I want to fly to Europe, it's perfectly fine if the Europeans themselves said, "Look, we don't want people who haven't been vaccinated coming to Europe," because that's the that's it's their continent, their choice, right? Yeah. But for Qantas to say you can't fly with us unless you've had the vaccination is outrageous, right? Mm. Uh, and I would certainly get the vaccination anyway because I want it for myself. And I, you know, it's your choice. It's my choice, right? But yeah. I don't think Qantas should be telling me to do it, right? Mm. Uh, and because everybody has a right over their own physical body and whether or not to inject foreign substances into that body okay mm -hmm. no one can force you to get a tattoo no one can force you to like get an amputation and you know no one can force you to do any of these things why is it that with this one pandemic mm. uh it's now a critical factor and and, and the the argument that is thrown up is that well you got to think of other people. this is the argument that the queen put forward right the, the queen elizabeth said so, you know people should think about others who are you know vulnerable and you absolutely should think about others absolutely you should, you should as a moral perspective yeah. think about others but from a to use that as a coercive excuse right to be mm. able to like okay well we're going to introduce all these mandates because you have to protect others well actually no because all of those other people as you said when you brought up the subject are going to have the inoculation already yeah. they're already going to be vaccinated mm. so who, who are these mythical grannies <laughs> that we're all killing right um, and so, I'm, I'm just thinking like well these others you know also like young people who have been trapped in their homes for so long and affected education are behind have no job no employment like, there's lots of others well, who are also harmed too um, I'll, I'll bring up some statistics I mean keep keep talking I'll bring up some oh, statistics from the uh, from the US oh, here we go I've already got it oh well there you <laughs> go okay so over the last year among 13 to 18 year olds in the United States Drug overdoses up 120 percent. Anxiety uh, anxiety diagnoses up 94 percent. Depression diagnoses oh up 84 percent. Right, this is April 2020 versus April 2019. Uh, this is like, you know, is, we, we've we've hit over a year of two weeks to flatten the curve. Right, um, no one had predicted that we would still be facing restrictions after this period of time. Mm. And I really am left to wonder, what if we never had a vaccine? Okay, like, would we be in lockdown forever? Is that the, is that, it's just like, <laughs> well, we're kind of, when, when, um, when all the, the politicians were making the gravest speeches, you know, so locking everything down, totally radically changing our day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. they, they were saying things that like, oh, this has to last up to six months. You know, this is like being very serious and, and being very cautious to think, look, you know, this whole wave of infection. And they kind of, I think, just assumed it would be like a flu seasonal thing, like it would come through and then it would go away. Yeah. You know? Well, we didn't know much about it. So. No, no. But, um, and so we, we, accepted these costs but now we're a year into it and you're like come on like this is not we've we've turned we've turned the total lockdown of our entire society into some kind of massive virtue signal uh and mm. it's 
we're, we're ostracizing people who don't agree. Mm. We are playing down or ignoring totally the real life consequences and costs. Like I've just read out a few statistics there, but what's the consequences of a billion kids not having school for a year? Yeah. And in developing countries as well. Absolutely. Where they don't have the resources to stay back an extra year and they have to go work and feed their family. Like it's, um, and not everybody can work from home. Like and you're, if you're in the service industry or in farming, mm. like you can't do that from a desk. <laughs> and that leads to another moral question with this vaccine, right? Because what we're saying, what people are saying is that um, the vaccine is necessary to end this trauma, okay? But it's, this trauma is self-inflicted. <laughs> you know, it's not, the, it's not the pandemic that's causing these lockdowns. It's, it's people's choices. Mm. Now, these choices may be justified. Right, these choices may be justified by the enormous harm that this disease causes, and that the risk to older people, uh, and the large numbers of people that have died already. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yes, it's a serious disease, but but let's not kid ourselves. Like this, these are all policies that that cause lockdowns. It's not it's not that the disease shows up and says everyone get in your houses. It's people that do that, mm-hmm. uh, and so we. When we say that the vaccine is the is the panacea for that, the emancipation of humanity, well, it's not. the The emancipation of humanity is is people's policy choices. And when we see say we see people say things like, "Oh, you know, restrictions may last for years after the vaccine," well, those decisions are made also by people. You know, mm. so um, let's not let's not confuse ourselves about this. Uh, the vaccine is a moral good. You should take it. You should take it for the benefit of yourself and for others. But it's not something that should be coerced. Uh, we've got enough coercion going on already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true, definitely. And it, it, like, and that argument that you were pointed out in terms of the um, uh, what was it, abortion argument with having the rights to your own body, because that's a very left like belief too. Is like having being able to have abortion um, early on or whatever. Like it's um, but then um, yeah, it, it but it's inconsistent with mandatory vaccinations um so yeah i mean that stood out to me like yeah once i hold that heard that example i was like yeah i understand now what the importance of having the right to your own body and having being able to make those decisions um i mean goodness thank goodness that children aren't really affected by covid like because that would that would open up so many different things um but yeah i mean put it this way if 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 what happened to children if it, if it was reversed, if, if older people were fine because, you know, lifetime of exposure to various things, um, you know, protected them and it was, it was children who were most vulnerable, mm. then all of these restrictions would be entirely justified, yeah, right? Um, and people would and, and, and coercion to get people to take vaccines and everything is justified because it's on behalf of people that don't have that autonomy, including over their own bodies, right? Mm. It's on behalf of people that don't have the age of consent, the age of of being able to have emancipation from their parental decision-making, right? And, of course, it's the future of our society and culture, right? So um, people people were lamenting that, uh, and this is an interesting philosophical kind of discussion, people were lamenting early on in the pandemic that, people weren't caring enough about these older people. Like there was a view that, oh, if this was children, everyone would be freaking out. Yeah, that's true, but that's also fair, okay? And I think most older people themselves 
would acknowledge that. I don't know too many grandparents that wouldn't give their lives for their grandkids, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, so we we have to ascribe a higher value to the future of humanity. That we I mean, they're the, the ones past. giving, right? They're the ones going to drive the GDP <laughs> eventually. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But and yeah, and 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 just like and on every element, fairness. Like you know, someone not having had much life versus someone who's had lived a full and rich life. Um, I mean, people were, were, there was that one gentleman that at the age of 100 or 101 passed away, that the captain, the, the, the uh, British guy who managed to raise like 40 million pounds last year by walking around his, uh, his front yard um, for, for the National Health Service, the, the British mm. health system, um, to fight COVID. And he died of COVID just a, like a few weeks ago. And he had a massive memorial service and he had, was knighted before he passed away. There's a beautiful picture of him meeting the Queen at 100 years of age and them getting on really well. Mm. Uh, he, he was a great veteran of the Second World War, wonderful guy by every, every account. And people were lamenting the fact that he had passed away, right? Mm. But at the same time, it's something to celebrate, right? This is a guy who lived 100 yeah. years. He achieved more in the last year of his life than most of us will achieve ever. Uh, uh, he was knighted before he passed away. Um, got to meet the Queen, the lifetime ambition, and uh, and and lived a rich and successful life. Would he would he not have given up his life for any one of these children? Right, like of course he would. So it's it's perfectly natural for us to make these judgments. I mean, another great example of this is we we can even make these sacrifices for objects. Uh, when oh. we we can when when um, the leader of whose name I can't remember, but it, now he's got a, a huge wing of, I think, the British Museum named after him. He, uh, he was the leader of antiquities in Palmyra, uh, Palmyra being an ancient Roman city um, mm. famous for the, the Zenobian breakaway and, and all of this sort of stuff, massive rebellions. Uh, and Isis blew up the temple there. Isis also went around trying to destroy all the antiquities. And the leader of the antiquity, right, he smuggled out thousands and thousands of, of mm. precious artifacts and when he refused to tell them where they were, they executed him, right? Mm. So he's a man who decided that his life was not equal to preserving these things for humanity. And why, why did he make that calculation? Well, because uh, these things are passed down through the ages mm. uh, and uh, are there for the benefit of future generations, right? And, and he made that calculation for himself, and we can probably judge that a fair trade, right? Um, because they did that for the future. And if you do things for the kids, you're doing things for the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, um, you know, you saw this with the, the fire in Notre Dame. You know, like I, I think it would be perfectly reasonable to sacrifice oneself to save the, the treasures at Notre Dame, the crown of thorns and all of that, even if you weren't a religious believer, mm-hmm. simply because it's a custodianship of all of humanity. You know, we need to preserve these things. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we make... We do make calculations about the cost benefit of human life every, all the time. Okay, mm. um, we don't talk about it much because no, it's like it's perilous, right? There's a lot of moral hazards there. You know how how, how many how many people in the nursing home is it worth to to, to save you know um, uh, you know one child, right? Like it's 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 not a calculation that humans think is is palatable to make. Okay. Yeah. But, it's not trading cards. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not trading. It's a really great way to put it. It's not trading cards. Okay. Um, but 
I think that the best benchmark to use is what would the older people themselves say, right? Um, that we can say it was a fair trade in the case of these antiquities because the guy in charge of those antiquities made the sacrifice himself, right? Mm -hmm. um, the the older people in all the nursing homes and things, I'm sure, every one of them, their grandkids, their great grandkids, they would they would happily sacrifice themselves. That was a requirement. It's not a requirement, thankfully. We we've got mm -hmm. you know other options, um, but certainly. If the disease impacted young people, children, mm -hmm. the way it impacts old people, if it was reversed, then there is no sacrifice that the society would make as a whole that we wouldn't think is justified, including forcing people to take vaccines. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's like, I, I, like a personal level, I feel like all human life is valued, mm. is valuable. Um, and yeah, it's... Yeah, again, it's not trying to cause on us, and I'm like, uh, I wouldn't know how to answer that question, but yeah, sure. But I, I do agree, like, if I was 80 or 90, you know, and I feel like, look, we need to lift these restrictions, but you might get COVID, but I'm like, you know what? I've lived a long life, like, these kids deserve to live too. <laughs> um, so There's a famous clip of this British woman, 82 years old, hmm who gets stopped in the street and she's like, I don't give a sod. Who's going to pay for all of this? <laughs> like, it's the young the, people. The young people. Exactly. You know the one I'm talking about, right? And she's like, it's like, uh, it's not me. I'm going to be dead. Like, no one. <laughs> don't worry about me. <laughs> um, and she, she laid it out pretty clear. She's like, I haven't got that many years left of me. I don't want to burden, like, you know, everybody else. Uh, now, I'm not saying that that should be the rule, right? But, but it, it gives you a sense that some people have yeah. You know, it's not just the young people that make sacrifices. Old people make sacrifices too. Yeah, yeah. no, that was, very, yeah, that was pretty funny to do. But, but, but I had, I think when things are funny, because you could say there's something real in it. Like, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. That's why that's why satire and comedy is essential. Exactly. They're the only people that can speak any truth around you. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, right. Um, any final thoughts, Crispin? We went through your topic today. Yes, yeah, so a lot of work is being done uh, by Elon Musk and SpaceX and governments and so on on, mm -hmm. on Mars. Mm -hmm. And I am struggling to see the benefit of it versus the real-life costs that we have here on Earth, right? Um, so what, what Elon would say is that... Uh, you know, humanity on a long enough time scale on Earth, if we're stuck on one rock, is doomed, right? Because if you're in one house, eventually the house will burn down in a fire or get hit by a tsunami or an earthquake or something. Um, and thus we need to have spread out throughout the universe in order to ensure that humanity will survive in perpetuity. And then we will kind of... And I think Elon probably, he hasn't said this publicly, but kind of imagines humanity as being the the genesis of... of um, galaxy-wide intelligent life because once we're spread out to different planets, okay, mm. we will begin to evolve and adapt to those planets, right? We will naturally through human evolution. And so we will evolve into different species over time and gradually spread throughout the galaxy. We might be the first intelligent life in the galaxy, but then perhaps eons from now, billions of years from now, mm -hmm. uh, there might be intelligent life everywhere and they'll trace their history back to this weird little rock called Earth and these humans that decided to do this. This is probably what Elon and his eons of thinking, you know, is, is thinking about. 
what I would say is that we're going to get there anyway. Um, what I would suggest is to focus these billionaires' attention not on on huge vanity projects like going to Mars, but solving the very serious problems that we have here on Earth. And in doing so, in improving the quality of life here on Earth, uh, we will drive technological changes and innovation that will also help us explore the galaxy in the future. It's like um, uh, a reason why they held off sending a probe. I'm trying, I can't remember all the details. Sending a probe into the, the outer solar system and beyond mm -hmm. decades ago is because rocketry technologies were advancing so rapidly mm -hmm. that what they would do is they might send a rocket off today, mm -hmm. right? And then in 20 years' time, a rocket will be invented that's so much faster that it just overtakes it and keeps going, right? There's no point in doing yeah. that now. Um, so what I would like to see is less egotistical vanity projects of these great minds, although, you know, you could do worse with that money, for sure. Um, uh, but to, to really focus on the massive problems that have been happening across different classes and groups of society here on Earth as what's a result a, what's of What's, like, one problem you would like to plant Elon or whatever billionaire to divert their intelligence and their money to? Well, I, as I said in the video, this is just one of countless examples, but the fact that 60,000 people die each year of rabies. These are young people, right? We can, And we have a, a vaccine to, to eliminate it. What The problem with the vaccine is that it requires like three or four doses and it's quite expensive, okay? Mm. What we've shown is we can produce four or five vaccines in a single year to eradicate a whole new disease, right? Using various types of vaccines to do that, there is absolutely no excuse for not being able to come up with a cheap, effective one-shot vaccine to get rid of rabies worldwide, right? The worst death that you can possibly imagine, right? If you don't ever look it up, it is, it is absolutely monstrous what mm. happens, right? And, uh, and it's young people, it's people who are in poor areas, uh, half the people that die from rabies each year are from India, 30,000 a year. Um, so so it's, it's something that Elon could deal with himself, right? Much more important, much more pressing than, than going to Mars. Okay? Mm. Um, having said that, I understand his vision. I can understand this, this yeah. eons year where humanity is suddenly the progenitor of countless intelligent life forms of different species throughout the galaxy. I think that, that's kind of a romantic thing. We could be that but it's not the most important issue. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Like, if, if there's a vaccine that already exists and they don't have enough funds and we can make it better, then yeah, totally agree. Mm. That'd be, that's, in, that's insane that it's it's still... Um, yeah, I'll make a video on it and talk about the problem of rabies and exactly how it all works. And... Um, I actually like look had to look back at my birth certificate and see like what vaccinations I've been given. Mm -hmm. And rabies was actually one of them. Like of all the vaccination gets rabies was one of them. And wow. it was over a few years. So I think, yeah, babies are still getting it now, like in Australia. I, well, I don't know, but... Not, not many are, actually. Not many are. Oh, so so okay. you would have been a special case. It might have been... Uh, like, whereabouts were you? Well, I was born in Darwin. Everyone oh, that's, that's why. Because, Dar yeah, no, specifically Darwin, oh. um, you, you could be exposed to some sort of tropical rabid animal um, oh. uh, and therefore, like, bats, basically. Um, yeah. So if you were born in, in Darwin or North Queensland, yeah. uh, there are bats in uh, that have rabies yeah um and bat bites are notoriously i mean i'll talk about this in a bit bat bites are notoriously hard to detect um so you could be bitten and not know and mm. then therefore invariably die so yeah it would be a um it's amazing that you've got it um but it's a very expensive vaccine very expensive 